The focus of the message this morning is going to be on verse 14, and especially uh, in light of all the discussion, uh, this is a quite a controversial verse uh, within Christian circles even in this day. And so uh, even though in many ways, in many ways this might be a little bit uh, need your concentration to follow this morning, I hope you will uh, concentrate on that because of the discussion that continues to permeate the church, especially on this text, especially in the present times right now in light of what's going on in the world. So if you turn to Mark 13, I'm going to read 14 through 23, 14 through 23. Listen carefully to God's word. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah, Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to, to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it will not happen in winter or in those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would, have, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then he, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess the prophetic words of our Savior are not easy to understand. We ask, O oh Lord, that you have a glimpse in, of understanding this morning in terms of this important text. It's important text for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and our knowledge and comfort in Christ as our, as our Lord and as our King of Kings, we ask you to bless our hearts this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Peter, James, John, and Andrew have asked Jesus for the sign when the destruction of the temple is going to take place back there in chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus has not provided an exact date for them through the first 13 verses of this chapter. But in verse 14, we have the closest hint from Christ 
about when the destruction of the temple is going to occur. Although in verse 14, he does not provide the exact date, he does speak to his, these disciples that it will be sometime in their own lifetime, on a day that they will see, keep that word in mind there in the text. As we turn our attention to verses 14 through 23 this morning, make sure you understand that verses 3 through 23, Christ is speaking to these disciples, soon to be turned into apostles about events occurring during the apostolic church. In this section, Christ warns these disciples not to be led astray by false messiahs, verse 6 and 7. And then in verse 22, he states his concern about the elect, if possible, being led astray by false Christs and prophets. No Christ's personal exhortation in verse 9. And be on guard because persecution is coming. And then in verse 23, he says, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Indeed, Christ is describing events within the lifetime of the apostolic church. Well, with this being said, Christ's words to these disciples is a clear exercise of his prophetic office. Christ in his prophetic office is speaking in the entire 13th chapter and he is speaking in prophetic language. This means the language can have a double implication like when we read the prophets in the Old Testament. The language will definitely refer to an immediate situation in the future but it also at times can refer to a distant future event. For example, the prophetic word that David's son will sit on his throne. The immediate fulfillment is Solomon, but also there is the future fulfillment in terms of the coming of the Christ, the son of David. Well, Christ the prophet is telling these disciples that they are about to see the events he is describing. But there is a sense which his language points also, points us also to the day of Christ's second coming. But let us be clear this morning. The focus of our attention is upon Christ's words to these disciples, to these disciples and the present circumstances of their fulfillment. This is a challenging task for every reader because prophetic language can be very symbolic and vague as to its reference and meaning. However, to echo Christ's words for the church in our own day for us, we need to be careful not to be led astray or, and be on guard about the false teachings of dispensationalism that have misled so many in the church today. Well, our first challenge is huge. What is the abomination 
of desolation that Christ speaks about here in verse 14. Let us begin with what we do know. <laughs> Christ's use of the phrase abomination of desolation is a reference of fulfillment from three passages in the book of Daniel. On your outline, you will see those passages and you can check those out during the week. First, as Christ embraces Daniel's prophecy, it is clear that Christ is speaking here of the temple in, in Jerusalem. This is verified by parallel passages in both Matthew and Luke. Second, Daniel speaks of the people of the prince who is going to come and destroy the city and the temple in Daniel 9.26. There is little doubt among conservative scholars that Daniel and Christ are referring here to the Roman Empire and her governors and emperors. Hence, in the third place, this places us within the time span of 66 to 70 AD, when the turmoil between Jewish zealots and the Roman occupation of Jerusalem comes to its height. So although Christ does not give us an exact date, we now know based on Christ's prophecy when his words about the sign took place. More specifically, we know that the destruction of the temple took place in 70 AD, when in the words of our Savior, the building and stones of the temple will be thrown down on each other, going back to verse 2 of chapter 13. These three points are quite certain about the context of the abomination of desolation. Now we need to try to understand as to what exactly this abomination of desolation mentioned in four, verse 14 is all about. Again, <laughs> let us begin with what we actually know. From the Daniel passages, we know that it is to be understood as a desolating sacrilege, an appalling sacrilege. If that language is a little strange to you, maybe this helps. An outrageous blasphemy against God. Although there is debate as to who or what this outrageous blasphemy is, let us try to do our best to remain within our principle of interpreting scripture, that is, scripture must interpret scripture, which not only includes Christ's words in relationship to Old Testament prophetic literature, but also, and let me underline this for us this morning, this is very important, the idea of scripture was scripture within the flow of Mark's presentation of Christ's ministry 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. We want to remain within the flow of Mark's ministry. Reformed and evangelical interpreters attempt to follow this directive best without going on wild, elaborate, imaginary speculations. So, what or who is this abomination of desolation? This appalling sacrilege, the most outrageous blasphemy against God. We have here a masculine verb. He is standing. And Christ further maintains that he is standing where he should not be. There are some scholars who identify this person as standing where he should not be as a superior male Roman leader. Prince, the prince that Daniel is referring to in his prophecy. In the temple, even placing himself in the Holy of Holies as a figure of deity where no Gentile should be, which would be an absolute abomination. Although this is a possibility, many dismiss this because there is no consensus from historical records of a Roman leader being in the Holy of Holies when the destruction of the temple occurred. For this reason, the fine New Testament reformed scholar Herman Ritterboss holds that the male reference of outrageous blasphemy is the Antichrist a single distinct male figure who will declare himself as the object of worship just prior, just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Please understand that although Ritterboss takes this reference as the Antichrist, he has no sympathy for the dispensational view of the tribulation prior to Christ's return. Well, let us look at Christ's reference to the abomination of desolation more closely. Let me begin, there's a very odd situation that you do not find in scripture very often. You have a parenthesis in verse 14. You have a parenthesis in verse 14. If you look at that, it's very, very important. It's interesting. It states, let the reader understand. It's odd. <laughs> let the reader. He's addressing us. We're the one. It's a gospel. It's being put in print. So let the reader, let us understand. Well, what are we supposed to understand here? Mark is pleading with his reader to understand what is going on here in the text. Why such a plead to understand directed to the reader, to you reading this gospel? This word understand is a crucial word in the progressive under, under, unfolding of the disciples' interaction with the ministry of Christ. 
Remember why Jesus speaks in parables? Do you remember that? So those who see and hear will not understand those who are outside the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 12. But the disciples will eventually understand. Chapter 4, verse 13. After the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples did not understand its meaning and their hearts were hardened. Chapter 6, verse 52. Later, Christ pleads to hear him and to understand that what goes into a person does not defile the person, but what is within one's heart defiles a person. Chapter 7, verse 14 and 18. When Jesus tells the Pharisees that he will not give them a sign recorded in the eighth chapter, he gets into a boat with his disciples and the disciples realize and they complain that they have no food to eat there as they're in the boat. What are they going to do? <laughs> they complain after, Mark points out, they complain after they have witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Christ says to them, do you not understand? And why are your hearts so hard? Chapter 8, verse 17 and 21. Then when Christ tells them, the disciples, the second time about his path to death and resurrection, Mark says that they do not understand. Chapter 9, verse 32. Our text before us here, the parentheses, is the last time in Mark's gospel that he will use the term understand. Understand. This time, who is it directed to? It's directed to you, the reader. The reader. What an interesting aspect here. <laughs> you see, what's going on here? Why is it directed to us, the reader? His point should be clear now to the reader. Up until this point through chapter 13, verse 13, the disciples do not understand the messianic son of God, son of man's identity and mission. But the question is, as you have been following and as you have been reading the gospel, do you understand? Do you understand who Jesus is as you have been reading? Essentially, Mark is telling you, the reader, don't you read another word without understanding that Christ ushers in the kingdom of God and went to the cross. That key word, verse, went to the cross as the ransom price for your redemption from sin. Now what is really interesting is that 
There are times when Christ is pushing his audience, the disciples, to understand his teaching, his miracles, his mission, his identity, with the words also, we have seen this as we have gone through this gospel, with the words hear and see. The words hear and see. Not only must the disciples understand, but they also need ears to hear and eyes to see. Now look closely at verse 14 of our text. What does Jesus say? But when you, what? See. The abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Now let's put this together. This is the last time Mark uses the term understand in his gospel. This is a very significant signal to the reader. Mark's hearing, seeing, understanding cluster. Did you get that? Mark uses this cluster all through his gospel. Seeing, hearing, understanding has just come to an end here in verse 14. That cluster has come to an end. Mark is telling us, telling the reader, not to make the same mistake the disciples did when they were with Christ and did not understand. The reader is telling the reader, repent and believe now. Don't read another word in this gospel until you repent and believe in the gospel right now. That's what he's saying to you. <laughs> That's where he's going. There's where Christ is. Repent and believe right now in contrast. Christ is telling his disciples, finally, you, you are going to have eyes that see. They will understand the outrageous blasphemy against God in the temple. Why will they have eyes to see and understand there in the future at that point? Because the Holy Spirit will be upon them. Verse 11. Verse 11. It's all connected. Revealing to them the truth of everything they witnessed in the ministry of Christ about his identity as the Messiah. So you've been waiting. So what about the identity of the abomination of desolation? This outrageous blasphemy against God. 
It seems to me that a specific Roman leader is not in view. Plus, I am not comfortable with Ritterboss's proposal of a future Antichrist, since it seems clear that Christ is referencing to the present disciples as seeing, that is, their own possibility of actually seeing or at least hearing by word of mouth this actual event. Let us do our best here to remain within the flow and context of Christ's path as Mark has recorded it for us in registering Christ's judgment upon the activities in the Jewish temple in chapter 11, Mark is the only gospel that includes the phrase from Isaiah 56, 7, for all the nations. When he remarks, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Chapter 11, verse 17. Christ then proceeds to call the present temple a den of robbers. Now move to chapter 13, verse 10, which we looked at last week. A verse that also only appears in Mark's gospel. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It seems that the focus of this blasphemy has to deal with Christ's continual judgment upon the present practices of the temple. That, it, that is where Christ in Mark's narrative has been leading us. In, and in connection with this, there is a relationship with the nations, in this case, Rome. Rome. At this point, I receive some assistance from a classic reform source. Some of you know, some of you use him, Matthew Henry. To my amazement, he held exactly to what was pulling at my heart as I worked on this text for over for two to three weeks, <laughs> trying to understand what's going on. Like in Isaiah's day, the land of Israel was deserted because her enemies executed the judgment of the Lord upon the, their apostate religion in Isaiah's day. Likewise, Jerusalem will be surrounded by the Romans and be made desolate, barren, because their religion practiced in the temple is an abomination. That's what Christ is outlined when he came in to the temple and chased the money changers. It's abomination. It's a blasphemous outrage before the Lord. The entire institution and corridors for the true worship of the Lord has been blasphemed and yes, as the Romans stand in every corridor, including the Holy of Holies, executing the temporal judgment of the Lord providentially, 
They will be standing where they should not be standing as a Gentile. But do not overlook that as they enter into what God has ordained as the house of prayer for all the nations, they are also desecrating the place where historically fallen humanity can be reconciled with their creator. The only place any human on earth, Jew and Gentile, who represent all, can pray, excuse me, can pray to the God of true religion. Hence, in 70 AD, it is both Jew and Gentile, Rome, who represents all fallen humanity in blasphemous outrage against the place that the Lord has designed as the place of his presence dwelling with his people. Christ is telling the disciples, soon to be apostles, that they will see, that key word, they will see the destruction and the pronouncement upon all false religion, Jew and Gentile, in 70 AD. And why will this tribulation, key word there in verse 19, and why will this tribulation be unlike what has ever occurred since the beginning of the creation? Think about that. That's what Christ says. Why is this going to be <laughs> unlike anything that has occurred since the beginning of creation? Because it has never been more manifested by the sovereign God of heaven and earth, nor will it ever be, ever be more manifested by the providence of God that the dwelling place of the Lord's presence for our worship has been firmly established once and for all in the new temple and sanctuary for the reverence of lords of the Lord's people. It is now established in Christ as our cornerstone who is marvelous in our eyes. Remember that? Remember that? Chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. The reason Christ sees their blasphemy as so magnified in history is because everything about the Jewish temple pointed to him. Do we get it? Do you understand that? Do you understand when you're reading the Old Testament 
about the tabernacle and the temple. It's all pointing to Jesus and the worship and reverence of Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to him. The Jews rejected him and turned the entire activity of the temple into blasphemy. And in 70 AD, the Romans and Gentiles enter into participation of this blasphemy as they destroy the temple, which was the earthly picture, the earthly picture of the only way to come to the true God through the sacrificial system pointing to Christ. You can see this in Daniel's own prophecies that I've already outlined for you, talking about the burnt offerings. Christ came into the world and fulfilled everything divinely designed and instituted by the Lord concerning the temple for his covenant people. Christ fulfilled what God ordained about the temple in his death and resurrection. Now as the cornerstone, now that Christ is the new temple, he is exalted to the right hand of his father as the final high priest and sacrifice for sin who has entered the heavenly Holy of Holies. Read Hebrews 9 this week. He is the true and only object of saving faith. And he is the final priestly intercessor of the house of prayer for the nations. And let us not forget the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit also in our human weaknesses, as Paul remarks in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Are you seeing the scope here? The Spirit intercedes to support the spiritual weaknesses of us who are the saints coming to the gospel from all the nations. And why do I mention the Holy Spirit here in this context? Do you recall what the unforgivable sin is? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 28 through 3. 30, Christ talks about it. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the belief, Christ says, is the belief that Christ is possessed with an unclean spirit. Chapter 3, verse 30. The blasphemy. You see the contamination of the temple and the failure to acknowledge that the presence of Christ is, a, 
The presence of Christ is alive. And that the Spirit accompanied Christ in his ministry places everyone present in the abomination of the temple in 70 AD under the sentence of the judgment of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, yes, that accompanied our Savior Christ in power and authority as the true Son of God, the true Son of Man, the heart and soul of the good news. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you see? Do you hear? Do you understand him? Let's pray. The good news has come, O oh, our Father in heaven. We thank thee so much for the love that you have poured out upon our hearts. that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. The passage before us is very sobering. Keep our hearts away from those things that are false and place them only upon the new temple, the cornerstone the Lord Jesus Christ. Always keep us in the path that will not forsake the Lamb of God. In Christ's name, amen.